Turn, if you will, to John chapter 6. So we take a break from Luke for a week. John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. You know, there's nothing that's more part of our life, nothing that we experience every moment of every day in every place we ever are, nothing we know better in one sense than gravity. So can you explain how that works? I know Sir Isaac Newton says that objects attract each other. That's easy to say, but how? And why? Scientists like Einstein and others have theorized since Newton first tried to define it, but you know, gravity, as obvious as it is to us, remains quite a mystery. Interesting then that we should think the God who created gravity is so easy to understand. But to hear us talk, many of us seem to have him and his gracious ways all figured out and in neat little boxes. No. However much we may have learned, he and all his ways are still forever beyond our comprehension. Our text this morning points us to such a God. For here we have woven together the complexities of God's grace. The fact that God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation and the equally important fact that he freely offers us his son. Here we're confronted by the mystery of God and his grace. Let me read it. John 6, verse 35 to 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In this passage, which sounds familiar to our ears, perhaps, and which sounds easy in some ways, we have two complex truths. The first is this, that God completely saves whomever he chooses. God completely saves whomever he chooses. We, we, we are a society that believes in education. We throw billions of dollars at education every year. Convinced that education holds the answer to society's ills. Give a person the right information. Present him convincing truth. Grant him a fair opportunity, and he or she will eventually do the right thing. Right? Wrong. Here we learn that in the most crucial area of life, in our relationship to God, even education is not enough. In verse 35, Jesus declares again what he had explained earlier, I am the bread of life. In case there was any confusion, he 
pointedly explains that whoever comes to him, whoever believes in him, will no longer suffer the pangs of hunger in his soul. So why don't they believe? Why don't they come? In verse 36, Jesus makes a point of their unbelief. They have heard his teaching. They have seen miraculous signs. They have heard his repeated explanations as he argued against their misconceptions. Still, they do not believe. You see, it was not an educational problem. They had been taught by the Lord himself. Today, I must tell you, our problems are much worse than we might have thought. We suffer not just from a lack of understanding or a lack of convincing truth or a lack of seeing enough evidence. We suffer from a spiritual blindness, a spiritual deadness which renders us totally unresponsive to God, no matter what evidence we might see. Everybody wants to be a champion of free will. Well, yes, our will is free. We're free to do whatever we please. The problem is that we're in bondage to sin and what we please is always evil. So that we are free to do what we want, we're not spiritually able to respond to Christ. We will just never want to. So it's true of those people whom Jesus taught. It's true of you. It's true of me. Oh, but the glorious truth here is that in spite of our total inability, God can save whomever he chooses. So from our text we learn that it's God's election, his choice, that makes the difference. Why is it that some people respond to Christ and others do not? If you've ever shared the gospel with you, this must, with someone, this must have perplexed you. One person realizes this is the greatest news he's ever heard and responds to the other person, scoffs and walks away. What makes the difference? Well, Jesus answers the question in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he says. Jesus looks behind the events of that moment, the words and the, and the attitudes and the desires of these people. He looks back to the eternal decrees of God. There in eternity past, God has chosen out of the mass of sinful creatures, some upon whom he will lavish his grace and those he has given to his son. Now, upon hearing the truth of the gospel, those he has chosen will certainly respond in faith and obedience to Christ. As the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson explains, Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response amongst well-meaning people. Far from it. His confidence is in his Father to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian, Carson says. God saves those whom he has chosen. Oh, but this truth of the glorious salvation of God involves not just our total inability to save ourselves and not just God's sovereign choice to save some by his grace, it also involves the actual completion of God's saving work. For here in John 6, we learn that it's Jesus' obedience that guarantees the outcome of our salvation. Listen to Jesus' explanation, verse 38 and 39. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him that sent me, that I shall not lose, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Here Jesus looks at our salvation, not just as it was conceived by, in the mind of God in eternity past, but as it, as it is lived out in all the vicissitudes of life. And his certain hope for us is nothing less than his own faithfulness. As D.A. Carson again observes, in other words, if any of them have failed to achieve this goal, it would be to the son's everlasting shame. It would mean either that he was incapable of performing what the father willed him to do, or that he was flagrantly disobedient to the father. Both alternatives are unthinkable. Those whom God has chosen, Jesus will completely save. It's nothing less than Jesus' obedience which guarantees the outcome. And sure enough, this is the clear testimony of the rest of Scripture. In Philippians 1, the apostle Paul writes, He who began a good work in us will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In fact, in John 10, Jesus himself says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. You see, from beginning to end, from our total inability to seek and understand God to our resurrection on the last day, God completely saves those he has chosen. Our salvation is by his grace plus nothing. It is from him and through him and for him. He chose us. He calls us in Christ. He keeps us in Christ until he raises us in Christ unto eternal life. The great Princeton scholar B.B. Warfield speaks of the deep chasm which separates the naturalistic thinking of the world and the supernaturalistic thinking of Christians. He says the line of division here is whether in in this matter of the salvation of man, God has planned simply to leave men to save themselves or whether he has planned himself to intervene to save them. The supernaturalist is not content to say that some of the power which is exerted in the saving of the soul or that most of the power that is exerted in the saving of the soul is from God. He asserts that all of the power that is exerted in the saving of a soul is from God. That whatever part man plays in the saving process is subsidiary. Is itself the effect of the divine operation. And that it is God and God alone who saves the soul. And this supernaturalist, and the supernaturalist in this sense, is the entire organized church in the whole stretch of its official testimony. Oh, don't you ever think that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God's grace is some lunatic fringe of theology. This is the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. God saves. God completely saves. Only God saves. God saves from beginning to end those whom he chooses. Well, this is a humbling reality. 
God's not at our disposal, we're at his disposal. We are not in any position to negotiate, to maneuver, to make deals. We are at his mercy. As he says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy, thus saith the Lord. God saves whomever he chooses. Oh, but this doctrine is also a great encouragement to those who trust in Christ. For you see, my salvation does not depend on my ability to hang on to Jesus, but on Jesus' ability to hang on to me. Or as Leon Morris puts it, it is based not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his sure grip on us. God completely saves by God's mighty, faithful power, whomever he chooses. This truth ought to put boldness in our witness. You see, as we go to share our faith, our success does not depend on on how clever we are or how persuasive we are or how good our marketing technique might be. No, the success of the gospel is in the hand of the sovereign God who saves those whom he has chosen. This morning I call you to stand in awe, to humble yourself before such a God. He is the sovereign one, the absolutely sovereign God. But that's not all Jesus says of this text. There's a second point which is this. God saves everyone who trusts in Jesus. God saves everyone who trusts in Jesus. I remembered when I first uh, understood these great truths of God's sovereign grace, that our salvation rests not on our own ability, but on God's uh, gracious election I remember how excited I was that I had found the, the new, the, the true message of salvation by God's predestination. And so I set out to convert all my Christian friends, beginning with my godly mother. Well, it only took a few moments and she was reduced to tears as I fired my giant seminary-trained howitzers of Reformed theology and airtight logic at her simple faith that believe that God saved anyone who trusts him. May the Lord forgive me for that. You see, I knew just enough Reformed theology to be dangerous to the church. I should have read more carefully the great Reformation theologian John Calvin a little better. Listen carefully to what he says. If God's will is that those he has elected shall be saved by faith. And he confirms and executes his eternal decree in this way. Whoever is not satisfied with Christ, but inquires curiously about eternal predestination, desires, as far as lies in him, to be saved contrary to God's purposes. The election of God in itself is hidden and secret. The Lord manifested by the calling with which he honors us. Therefore, says Calvin, they are mad, crazy, who seek their own or other salvation in the labyrinth 
of predestination. You see his point? We know nothing about the secret predestination of God. We only know the gospel, that God saves those who trust in him. If we seek our salvation in, in our knowledge of predestination, we abandon our hope in the gospel. That's what Calvin said. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things believe belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow them. Now, the eternal election of God involves secret things. We're told that it, exi- it exists, but we have no direct knowledge of it. What has been revealed to us is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners and now commands us to come to him in faith and promises eternal life to those who do so. Another way of saying this is that we cannot view the covenant of God's grace through the eyes of the eternal decrees. We can only view uh, God's eternal decrees, his election, through the eyes of God's covenant of grace. So though our text speaks of our total inability, you have seen, still you not believe, Jesus said. According to verse 35, the proper response to our hunger is still, come to Jesus, the bread of life. And though we know that only those who are chosen by the Father will believe, according to verse 37, the evidence of that election is that we come to Jesus and believe. And though we know that it's Jesus who does the Father's will and thus guarantees the success of God's salvation, according to verse 30, the will of the Father that Jesus guarantees is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him has eternal life. Isn't it interesting that these most explicit statements about the sovereignty of God in election are set in the context of a call to come and believe in Jesus. You see, in spite of what our feeble minds might think, in the infinite wisdom of God, it is not contradictory to say that God completely saves whomever he chooses and to say God saves all those who trust in Jesus. So how do I know whether I'm elect or not and can be saved? I don't know. Neither do you. But my soul is hungry. And in verse 35, Jesus offered himself the bread of life who alone can satisfy the emptiness with the promise that those who come to him won't be hungry anymore. And really, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm elect For he promises in verse 37, whoever comes, I will never turn away. These words speak sweetness to my heart. Though I do not know his eternal secret will, he declares to me in verse 40, his father's will that every one who looks to the Son and believes on him has eternal life. And so I look, I believe, I come, and sure enough, he gives me life just like he promised. And then from the safety of the arms of Jesus, I look back and I say, how is it possible that I who used to hate God should now love him so much? 
How is it possible that I who so loved wickedness should now want to be righteous like my Savior? How is it possible that I who was so helpless now have assurance of salvation? And as I search the scripture, the Lord says, here's how it's possible. Before you ever created, I chose you. When you were still a sinner, I sent my son to die for you. And while you were running the other way, I sent my spirit to call you irresistibly. And when you were still so weak that you could not stand alone, I personally made sure that you persevered to the end to be raised to eternal life on the last day. And then I understand how God saves everyone who believes in Jesus. This morning you may not comprehend three words that I've said. That's okay. But if your soul is hungry, I call you to come to Jesus, the bread of life. You may not begin to understand how God could ever elect someone before they were ever born. I don't understand either. But this we must understand. Those who trust in Jesus have eternal life. You may fear that with all you've done, God would never accept you anyway. I sometimes share that fear. But Jesus promises whoever comes to him, he will not turn away. So this morning I call you to come to Jesus. Knowing God's sovereign name, I command you to come to Jesus. And I guarantee that there's life in Jesus and nowhere else but in Jesus. God saves everyone who trusts in him. Martin Luther said to Erasmus, the Renaissance scholar, your God is altogether too human. More recently, J.B. Phillips brought the same accusation in the title of his little book, Your God is Too Small. The late Francis Schaeffer would have agreed, specifically in regard to these issues of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I love the way I heard Schaefer explain it once. Let me tell you again. I've told you many times, but I'll tell you some more because I love it. This helps me. Schaefer says there are two very different views of God around. Some think that God is a helpless giant. He's powerful enough to do anything, but man must give the command. Man's the trainer who tells him what to do. Others think that God is a grand puppeteer. Man is a dummy on a string. He thinks he's making decisions, but in fact, God is just pulling his strings. He's the grand puppeteer. Now, people who hold these views argue back and forth. The the radical Arminian over here and the radical Calvinist over here. But as Francis Schaeffer points out, in reality, these people are both committing the same sin. They're attempting to strip God of his mystery and reduce him down to something we can comprehend in our little minds. For you see, we can comprehend a helpless giant who has to be told what to do, and we can comprehend a grand puppeteer who makes our decisions meaningless. But what we cannot comprehend is a God who is so sovereign that he absolutely ordains everything that comes to pass, and at the same time, His human creatures 
have real choices and he holds us accountable for what we choose. Such a God is beyond the grasp of our finite minds. He seems totally contradictory to us. He is unfathomable mystery to us. But that's the God of the Bible. He's absolutely sovereign. He completely saves whomever he chooses. And at the same time, God offers himself in the gospel and holds us accountable for our response, promising that he will save everyone who comes to Jesus and trusts him. Amen. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, when we've reduced you down to something we can understand and fit in our little human categories. Lord, we stand in awe before you today. And we realize we understand almost nothing. And yet, Lord, you give us hope. For you call us, Lord, to come to Jesus. And our souls are hungry. And you promise us, Lord, that our salvation is not of us, but of you. For we are so weak. So grant us grace to trust you, to keep coming back, to keep on trusting until we understand better in the glory that we have with Jesus in eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.